Hi, it's David Freudberg from Humankind on Public Radio. Stay tuned. Our podcast begins in a moment after this brief word. It's true that you never really know what someone else might be going through. But just think about what might happen if we did. How we might treat each other with more patience and compassion. The world needs us to take a step back and listen to one another. I'm Kathleen Merrigan. And I'm Ingrid Busson-Hall. We're the hosts of This Is My Silver Lining, the podcast where, each week, we pull together the strongest threads of our humanity, courage, kindness, compassion, and gratitude. Our guests explore their toughest moments and how rising to the challenges led them to discover unexpected opportunities, connection, and community. We know you'll be inspired by these stories about the people you might pass on the sidewalk or stand next to in line at the grocery store about what inspires them to take chances, to be kind, and to find gratitude despite the obstacles that they face. Subscribe to This Is My Silver Lining on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. You may have heard of the recent movie about the life of Robert Oppenheimer, who led development of the atomic bomb during World War II, then had regrets about the project. So we now present an episode entitled The Clash of Science and Ethics that explores this theme. One of the folks we spoke with was Everett Mendelssohn, who taught the history of science at Harvard. Dr. Mendelssohn passed away last month at age 91. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund and a special grant from the Henry Luce Foundation. I've known colleagues, young and old, who become completely absorbed in the technical problems they're working with, and you can understand that. They're fascinating problems. And I have to say that, by and large, the scientific community has indeed attempted to gain its technical success before asking about the social and moral implications of what that success will bring. The clash of science and ethics when talented researchers develop terrible weapons that are used against civilians. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. The question we always ask is, how could this happen? That was the world's reaction in August 2013 when disturbing images surfaced of civilians, including many children, lying lifeless after poison gas attacks in the suburbs of Damascus, Syria. But military use of dreadful arms always occurs after people devoted a lot of brain power and effort to developing the weapons in the first place. Historian Robert Neer took me on a tour of Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is the location of a top-secret basement research laboratory um, that was created by the university in uh, 1942 to house um, Professor Louis Fieser, um, who was a genius and a very prominent member, although quite young still, of the Harvard chemistry faculty, and a select group of assistants that had been assembled by him to conduct uh, government-financed war research on uh, first poison gas, uh, but then uh, later incendiary weapons. 
the initial task uh, was to develop a kind of thickening agent for uh, gasoline um, based on rubbers. But after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor uh, cut off much of the rubber supply to the United States, the research turned to finding chemical alternatives for rubber that could be used uh, to produce gelled weapons that are very sticky and consequently more effective at starting fires. The Imperial Japanese Navy's assault on Hawaii ignited World War II. This heightened the urgency of American weapons researchers who were also eyeing the ominous march of Nazi Germany through Europe. On Valentine's Day 1942, Fieser and his team notified the government that they had uh, developed uh, a formulation uh, that they called napalm. A quarter century later, the use of napalm, a sticky gel that causes severe burns to human skin, would come to symbolize the brutality of the Vietnam War, especially in its horrific impact on civilian peasants. The weapons development, which tapped the minds of gifted scientists, is chronicled in Robert Neer's book, Napalm, an American Biography. Chemists have been at work and uh, war engineers since the 1940s, and newer napalms burn even hotter and are even more sticky than earlier napalms. How hot are we talking about? About 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, approximately. 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. So uh, that's hotter than anything that most people are likely to come in contact with in their normal course of existence. But it's not the heat that's the real problem, as it were, or the really devastating thing. The real problem is that it's sticky, so that it will uh, burn and then continue to burn and be very hard to stop burning uh, as, it, um, as it continues down into someone's skin. Experiments uh, that have been done um, by military uh, researchers um, indicate, not surprisingly, that even um, a very small amount of napalm placed uh, on someone's shirt um, would very soon, within a few seconds, create excruciating pain as it burned uh, through the cloth and into the skin. And if the blob of napalm is large enough, it can continue to burn all the way down to the bone. The first field test of a napalm bomb occurred on July 4, 1942, at the Harvard College soccer field. A photo of the test site shows people playing tennis on nearby courts. Other experiments involved gel packed around gunpowder, which was detonated in a remote area of Everett, Massachusetts, a working-class town about five miles outside Cambridge. Eventually, the scientists had refined napalm to the point where it could be mass-produced. During World War II, a variety of companies, about a half a dozen, produced napalm uh, because the government was trying to make as much as possible. As soon as military forces saw it in operation in World War II, they wanted to get more. In fact, uh, in Japan, um, when it was first used against the city of Tokyo on the 9th of March, 1945, it was judged to be so effective um, that particular attack killed more people than any other in the history of the world, more even than the atomic explosions at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, so the commanders felt that that was such a victory um, that they would continue to use as much napalm as they could, as quickly as they could. Over 100,000 humans 
uh, were killed uh, as wave after wave of bombers came in uh, and dropped in, uh, both incendiary bombs, napalm, and explosives. Everett Mendelssohn is emeritus professor of the history of science at Harvard. He came to the university a decade after napalm was invented there. Dr. Mendelssohn has long studied and taught about the social implications of scientific research. We knew of how this material, napalm, had been used. Uh, it had been used in the firebombing uh, of cities, Dresden, Hamburg, the two in which uh, the nature of war had been proven to be changed. Instead of bombing specific military or strategic targets, you now bombed whole cities. Uh, and you drop Nepalm on those cities as a way uh, to wipe out uh, the way, the manner in which daily life was lived. As I recall, Winston Churchill uh, called it, we wanted to de-house the uh, uh, residents uh, of those towns. So Nepalm was not new to us. Anti-war demonstrators protest U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War in mass marches, rallies, and demonstrations. Central Park is the starting point for the parade to the U.N. building. The estimated 125,000 Manhattan marchers include students, housewives, beatnik poets, doctors, businessmen, teachers, priests, and nuns. In 1967, a year when the anti-Vietnam War movement gained momentum in America, Everett Mendelssohn was one of over 100 Boston-area professors to sign a newspaper ad supporting students who protested campus recruitment by Dow Chemical Corporation, the chief supplier of napalm. The image that was strongest in the minds of those of us who had looked at it and knew something of its history was that it was non-combatants who turned out to be the major uh, targets. Uh, if you used napalm on a... Uh, uh, military installation, people would not have worried about it much. But when you use it as an instrument for burning out whole cities in which uh, non-combatants lived, uh, you became more and more worried. So that when they began using Napalm in Vietnam, uh, our antenna went up. Uh, we were aware of the fact that this meant uh, that they were broadening uh, the targets uh, and they were going to, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, be careless in whether they uh, were going after military installations or uh, uh, human residences. This way of settling differences is not just... Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. at the Riverside Church, New York City, April 1967. This business of burning human beings with napalm, of filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of peoples normally humane, of sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields physically handicapped and psychologically deranged, cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love. One of the most vivid and haunting depictions of napalm was that famous photograph of a young girl named Kim Phuc taken in South Vietnam in June of 1972. Can you just tell us uh, about that? A South Vietnamese airplane appeared badly off course uh, and dropped several napalm bombs, um, one of which caught Kim in a fire cloud and uh, burned her over uh, more than half of her body and her back and her and her head, um, so that when the picture was taken, uh, she was running burned naked uh, because of the fire that had enveloped her and with portions of her skin still burning. She was nine years old. 
She was nine years old. She's now about 50 years old living in Canada. Have you been in contact with her? I have been. Um, she uh, very kindly spoke to me a number of times uh, about her experiences and said that she was filled with rage uh, after uh, what happened to her because it was so unjust. Um, what possible basis could there be for practically burning alive a nine-year-old? Um, and over decades, she came to the personal uh, realization that that rage was actually destructive to her. And so she uh, found God, uh, converted to Christianity, uh, found enormous um, comfort through that belief, and forgave uh, the people uh, who had done this to her in every context. We're exploring ethical questions around the role of scientists in developing powerful weapons for military use. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this topic and to obtain an audio download, please visit humanmedia.org. You mentioned earlier Louis Fieser, this chemist uh, on the faculty of Harvard, a chemistry prodigy who led the scientific development of napalm. He was a paradoxical figure. He served on the Surgeon General's panel many years later that declared tobacco harmful to health, yet he developed uh, a weapon that largely became a pariah and and uh, was decried as inhuman by many. Fieser himself, I don't think, saw that as a paradox. Not then, not later. Historian Robert Neer, author of Napalm. He said, for example, in response to uh, questions that swirled around him during the anti-Napalm demonstrations in the 1960s, when this question was put with a vigor and a force which is scarcely imaginable to contemporaries, uh, the passions of the debate that occurred in the 1960s. And when students at Harvard protested the manufacture of Napalm by Dow Chemical and the recruitment of Harvard students to go work at Dow Chemical in demonstrations that shut down the chemistry buildings where Fieser's office was and close to the place where the research had been done that invented this substance, Fieser himself said that he had no responsibility at all for the uh, uh, inhumane uses of napalm, such as they may have been. Uh, the analogy that he drew was to the gun manufacturer, who he said was not responsible for the assassination of President Kennedy. The moral question seemed to turn on whether a weapon developed in a military-funded laboratory and quickly deployed in war could be considered a neutral object, in the same way that, say, a common kitchen knife could be used for either slicing vegetables or slitting someone's throat. Science historian Everett Mendelssohn says that questions about the ethics of research came to haunt many of the scientists who converged on Los Alamos, New Mexico in World War II to develop the atomic bomb 
a research project launched the same year that napalm was invented at Louis Fieser's lab in Cambridge. I arrived at Harvard as a graduate student in 1953. He was still uh, quite active, and uh, I even sat in on his organic chemistry course, not for credit, but to uh, increase my knowledge of organic chemistry because I wanted to go on and do some uh, work in biochemistry. Uh, So that I saw him uh, three times a week for uh, the better part of a year. What was he like? He was a very positive man, and that you could tell even by his lecturing style. Uh, His reputation was one of being uh, extremely agile as an experimenter, very inventive, uh, of having a somewhat authoritarian personality. Uh, He didn't brook uh, uh, disagreements easily, uh, and being a very effective teacher. He disavowed any responsibility for inhumane use of napalm. How do you feel about that? Well, uh, I take it with a grain of salt. Remember that marvelous Tom Lehrer song uh, about uh, uh, the German scientists? And remember his line in that one song, once the rockets go up, I don't care where they come down. That's not my department, said Werner von Braun. Uh, Scientists can't escape from the responsibility for things that they create. They may in later life, want to disavow uh, their own work. To some extent, J. Robert Oppenheimer became uh, deeply, deeply concerned about what he had done as director of the Manhattan Project, the atomic bomb project. Uh, Any number of other uh, scientists who were physicists, particularly who'd worked on that project, uh, came away in the years immediately after the Second World War, uh, feeling a sense of personal guilt and repugnance at what they had done. Uh, many of them probably hadn't thought through until very close to the end of the atomic bomb project uh, that the bomb would actually work and that it would be used, uh, and that it would be used against uh, largely civilian populations. I'm sorry, so this entire complex at Los Alamos uh, was created couple billion dollars spent on developing the bomb in the Manhattan Project, and yet people who had moved there, who were working on it daily as a scientific problem, had not imagined its ultimate use? Uh, Yes and no. Uh, Some had, some hadn't. Uh, Again, the context, the war in Germany, uh, the barbarity of that war. Uh, uh, There was zero sympathy for Hitler. Uh, and his armies. Uh, And uh, it's in that context that these physicists, many of them young, not all, some senior physicists, but it was in this context that they were working. A number of their key uh, compatriots working at Los Alamos were German refugees, scientists who'd escaped Germany, uh, either because they were anti-Nazi or both because they were Jewish. Uh, so that uh, the mood at Los Alamos through making the bomb, through bringing it to being, was one in which uh, we're looking for our technical success. That's what we want. Uh, When it came to the last months, when it was clear they were going to successfully make a bomb, some began to worry. And again, some petitions were circulated among the group who were its makers, uh, urging that some alternate means be found to warn the Japanese uh, so that they would surrender. That ghostly shading on the bridge walk is the only remaining evidence of what was once a man. The bomb blast consumed his body entirely, 
but cast his imprint on the stones where he stood to meet his fate. Science still seeks to uncover the complete secret of the mighty atom's power. For most of the scientists, uh, right up to its use, they were focused on would it work. And so so how, how do you understand what appears to be a kind of disconnect between people preoccupied with a technical puzzle that they are brilliantly working their way through and the actual ramifications of technologies that they succeed in creating. This, of course, is a continuing tension for uh, scientists, for discoverers or inventors in many fields, particularly ones in which some product is created which can affect the lives of others. Uh, and it's in that context that uh, people, trained scientists, practitioners, uh, want to have their technical success. Uh, and then, uh, for many, let's have our technical success and worry about the implications after it. And this was the uh, general attitude, I think, among many of the bomb makers uh, during the Second World War. It may be hard to fathom how scientists selected for their high intelligence for a project to develop powerful armaments can fail to come to grips with the moral dimensions of their research work. Is it that people get swept up in the fervor and fear of wartime? Is there an element of denial at the horrible consequences of weapons being developed? Whatever the reasons, figuring out the science seemed to take priority author Robert Neer. Among other preparations that the, uh, that the Army made were to build model German and Japanese residences. Um, later in the process, there was testing on factories, but the majority of the testing of napalm was against residential uh, houses. Uh, German ones were designed with d three different types of roofs to reflect different architectural customs in different parts of Germany, in the Rhineland and in eastern Germany. Uh, the Japanese houses were designed to reflect typical Japanese workers' residences. Um, Archeo Studios was involved because uh, their set design people had a lot of experience um, making um, sets as realistically as possible. In the case of the German houses, the government um, actually reopened a furniture factory in upstate New York to get uh, furniture that was just to the type that was used in Germany. Um, and then furnished, furnished the rooms accordingly. So if they were testing napalm on structures that were intentionally built to emulate residential homes, did they not anticipate that there would be an effect of the use of this weapon on civilians? It's hard to imagine that there wouldn't have been. There's no explicit discussion of that that I found, but uh, these were houses complete. Uh, with everything except for the people in them. I remember Daniel Ellsberg, who in the early 1970s disclosed the Pentagon Papers, which was a study of over 40 volumes compiled by the Pentagon itself, reconstructing the government decision-making around the Vietnam War. And Ellsberg said that nowhere in the Pentagon Papers did there seem to be a discussion of the impact of the war-making procedures and policies on the civilian population of Vietnam. 
Um, I think that my research with respect to the engineers and the people that were involved with the production of the weapon running straight through the people who were designing these model villages that we've just been discussing uh, was very similar to Mr. Ellsberg's conclusion. This was a research problem that had to be solved. There were, of course, scientists in the 1940s who harbored moral reservations about weapons development, but something changed profoundly, existentially, in World War II. The intersection of mass-scale warfare and advanced technology brought humanity to a turning point. The atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan, in August 1945, ushered in a frightening age. For the first time, mass destruction was now an option available to war makers. Science historian Everett Mendelssohn. Several years after the Second World War, a whole scientist movement sprang up, uh, trying to gain uh, uh, civilian control over the weapons, trying to move to some sort of international control to make sure that these weapons wouldn't spread and that they would never be used again. So scientists did get deeply involved they didn't have great success because of the Cold War, and in a sense, they uh, faded away. Life back in the laboratory absorbed them, with the exception of a few. They did found a scientist organization. The Federation of Atomic Scientists became the Federation of American Scientists. They established the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists with that famous uh, a doomsday clock of how many minutes to midnight were you coming. And during the Cold War, the period of the 50s and early 60s, uh, scientists were caught in the middle. Uh, you'll remember this is the period of Senator Joseph McCarthy. This was the period of the House Un-American uh, uh, Affairs Committee in which uh, if scientists were called up uh, to testify before Congress and were pilloried. Uh, any number of people, particularly if they were young and without tenure at the universities, lost their jobs uh, because they were uh, not sympathetic enough to the uh, American side of the Cold War. So did, did that atmosphere encourage people to kind of put on blinders about the moral implications of what they were doing? I'd say for most people, or for many people at least, the answer is definitely yes. Uh, they blinded themselves to things outside what they were doing in the laboratories. Uh, and in to some extent, I'd have to say that the blinders were pushed back in part uh, by uh, the young people. Uh, during the uh, uh, rise of the anti-Vietnam War movement, young people forced those questions upon their elders. Uh, and it's in that context, I think, that the petition you mentioned, signed by uh, professors here at Harvard and petitions uh, uh, around the country, uh, the context in which they developed, uh, a newfound sense that, uh, yes, we have to at least live up to the uh, expectations that our students and our young people are creating for us. Is there anything in the, the scientific process, the research process, that can insulate people from moral reflection? Yes and no. I've known colleagues, young and old, who become completely absorbed in the technical problems they're working with. And you can understand that. They're fascinating problems. Uh, they are issues which take them right out to the edge of their knowledge, and they have to push to gain more and more. It's exciting. And you watch it, and you can just feel uh, 
as you sit down at lunch with them or you have a, a, a glass of wine in the evening, uh, you can feel the intense uh, attention uh, being given to this scientific problem that they're engaged in. Uh, the implications of what they're doing, some pick it up easily, others figure someone else will deal with that. And they hold back. Uh, they don't let it get in the way of their work. And I have to say that by and large, uh, the scientific community has indeed attempted to gain its technical success before asking about the social and moral implications of what that success will bring. And sometimes the social and moral implications are rather dire. Uh, very definitely. I mean, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki are a clear example, and uh, uh, Hamburg and Dresden and Tokyo are clear examples of the Nepal influence. So what I'm, I'm wondering about as you talk is whether there is something in scientific inquiry that reduces things to an abstraction which can make it hard to understand the human level of decisions that are being made, actions that are being taken, policies that are being implemented? I'd say at the core of knowing in science, you do want to strip those away. You want to deal directly with the technical elements. Uh, part of what uh, any number of us have done in our courses, like I do in my, did in mine, is to bring back into the calculus of students, of scientists, uh, the fact that they've got to regularly ask, uh, what comes of this? Where is it going? Uh, what's its meaning? What's going to be affected by it? Is it good? Is it bad? Or is it potential for good and potential for bad? Science historian Everett Mendelssohn. Louis Fieser, the Harvard chemist who led the research project that developed napalm, died in 1977. Three years later, the UN Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons outlawed the use of napalm on civilians. The provision covering napalm was signed by President Barack Obama on his first full day in office in 2009. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Mark Kilstein, David McDevitt, and Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, The Clash of Science and Ethics, is Humankind Program number 200. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.